Ciao e benvenuto nel podcast Blazers for Goalposts. Today we're discussing Serie A and all things Italian football. Like the rest of the major European leagues, Serie A has recently resumed, and whilst Juventus look odds-on to retain a Scudetto that has almost been exclusively theirs to win over the last decade, we still have plenty of other clubs and topics to talk about on today's pod. I'm joined as ever by my co-host Joe, as well as our old friend Yanni. As for the type of insight into Serie A and the Italian football culture that you can only truly get from passionately following an Italian club, I'm pleased to say that we also have a special guest and a fan of a team who are actually the last club to win the league before Juventus decided to go and hog it all for themselves. Joe will be introducing him shortly, but first I'll be kicking off this episode's mini intros by naming my favourite Italian team, and it's got to be Fiorentina. La Viola have always had awesome kits, which everyone knows, especially when you're a kid, is the best barometer when it comes to picking a team to follow in a league you don't know much about. I like purple, so that's a good start, but in particular, the Nintendo kit they had in the late 90s was brilliant, as it managed to combine two of my favorite things at the time, being football and video games. And then also, my favorite pizza comes from Fiorentina, funnily enough, it's just called Pizza alla Fiorentina, and it's got a runny fried egg on it. Joe, what's your favorite Italian team? And I am just interested, have you ever tried Pizza alla Fiorentina? Hello everybody, it's Joe here. I have of course tried the Fiorentina pizza and you know I love it. Bit of egg, bit of spinach as well. What can go wrong with a pizza like that? But weirdly Kai, we're actually in agreement today because I would say that my favourite Italian side would also have to be Fiorentina. And I'm not sure if this is because Florence is my favourite place I've visited in Italy, but there's something really cool about La Viola, as Kai has already mentioned. that The Nintendo kit was, yeah, bit of an iconic one and they even have Frank Ribery now which is as great as it is quite random I'd say. Moving away from Florence today's guest definitely isn't a Fiorentina fan. Matt Sant'Angelo is the co-host and co-founder of the Football Content Awards nominated podcast State of Play which covers Europe's top five leagues as well as the MLS. He also co-founded fan account AC Milan Bros. Matt tell us why are you an AC Milan fan? Well, first off, guys, thanks for having me on. I uh, very much appreciate it. And yeah, I guess I'll start with my love and growing love still, despite some of the difficult times. I still find myself growing to love this club even more so through some of the difficult moments. I pretty much started just a little bit prior to the 2006 World Cup. You know, many people kind of gravitated towards that Italian national team, um, obviously as winners, but also the kind of the makeup of that squad. And that kind of got me into Calcio very much. And then I started kind of looking around at just certain makeups of certain clubs. Uh, Kaká, Paolo Maldini, um, Franco Baresi, it kind of dates back many years. But I think I would say Kaká was probably one of the biggest reasons why I grew to love this club so much. In the States, I grew up mostly on baseball, basketball, American football. So then when I dove headfirst into Calcio, Milan were the team I just kind of gravitated toward. Yeah, ever since then, you know, as you guys mentioned, uh, Juventus have dominated this league for the better part of the past, what, decade? I would say eight, nine years. Of course, you know, you see it in the back and I got my flag here. These colors definitely still run through my veins and, and I'm just hoping that we could turn the corner soon. That's kind of my story in a nutshell. Hi everyone, uh, it's Yoni here. I'm in agreement with Matt. I'm not going to pretend that I'm as passionate about Milan as he is. But they are probably my favorite Italian side. I think just that Milan side of the mid-noughties had so many great players. They really won me over. They reached the latter stages of many Champions Leagues. And I think also Matt mentioned Kaká, and he is probably one of my all-time favorite players. Just the way he played, his sort of grace on the ball, his skill. There aren't that many players like him. There was something special about him. So Milan are the team that I have uh, soft spots for in Italy. Just a couple quick questions for you, Matt, before we really dive into today's episode. Given the somewhat similar trajectory of both Arsenal and Milan's downturns in fortunes in recent years, to put it nicely, and the presence of both clubs of our mutual friend, even Gazidis, behind the scenes, I feel like as fan groups, we probably have a decent amount in common these days. So... This is a bit from left field, but as an Arsenal fan, I'm curious to know what, if any, memories you have of Aubameyang and Socrates' time at Milan, and if there is perhaps a wider-held opinion on either of them, given that they both went on to be pretty successful after leaving Milan, especially Aubameyang, of course. 
with Aubameyang, it's a fascinating one, right? Because I think when you compare a guy like Aubameyang and what he's been able to accomplish, you know, at Borussia Dortmund, even in his you know, handful of years in France before he obviously went to Dortmund and he had a, such a great partnership with Marco Reus, and then obviously what he's been able to accomplish in a couple of years at Arsenal, I think everyone's going to quickly look to him, right? Because anytime you kind of let go of a young talent prematurely, everyone's going to say, okay, well, you know, you let him go and, you know, he's the star. How do you not know that? Or, you know, this, that, what have you. But, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? Because I think there's so many times where teams and clubs let go of certain players. And then initially everyone's kind of like scratching their head, like this guy had something, why would you let him go? But then it turns out maybe he doesn't succeed elsewhere. And then the club looks pretty solid and they look pretty good. They look pretty smart. With Socrates, he was another one of those players too. I think he kind of got lost in the shuffle of a bit of a transitional set sort of phase with the club in general. I think he's a player that maybe Milan invested in at the time. They hoped that maybe he would be a serviceable player for them, get a lot of opportunity. But I think one of the growing issues of the club that has been a ongoing problem is the fact that managers constantly are changing. And I think when you have one manager who values a player and then they get a new manager and that player maybe isn't quite on the same terms or sees eye to eye or has a good fit in the project, there's always some sort of disconnect there. And I think we see quite a bit, you know, with clubs that are in turmoil, just like Milan, you know, even Arsenal and to an extent, even Liverpool, you know, I know they just came off winning their title on Jurgen Klopp, but they're not too far removed from having, you know, the Ricky Lamberts, the Mario Balotelli's, you know, some of these guys who just weren't Liverpool Cowboy players, but, you know, for one reason or another, they kind of got lost in the shuffle and you kind of forget that they're even were at that club. So, you know, just to kind of wrap up this part of it, I think with Obamaing, it's one of those things where it took him quite a while to get going. So I don't think Milan fans are too upset about that. And at the time, I think Milan were still thriving. So when you're playing while you're winning, I think you're not going to overthink those sorts of things. But when everything's you know going poorly, everything becomes that much more magnified. And I think that's kind of what Milan's situation has been for the most recent seasons. Someone maybe, for instance, who got lost in the shuffle at Arsenal is Serge Gnabry, who at the beginning of his time away from the club, we were kind of looking at, okay, maybe this wasn't the worst decision. He had even struggled at one point to get into the West Brom team while he was on loan there. But these days now we look back and it looks like... Right. Even, you know, another young player too. It's And I know he's still very young, but I consider him a key member of Milan's squad going forward is Ismail Benacer, right? Another one at Arsenal where you can say, hey, like they have this player groomed. You kind of slot him into that midfield for a player who's... 21-22, you have teams like PSG, Real Madrid, and Manchester City looking to spend 40, 50 million on this guy. That's one of those things where you kind of look and you're like, Nabri, Benacer, like why are Arsenal not finding ways to integrate these players in? If your team, again, is winning, you're a dynasty and you have options, then players get lost in the shuffle because they can't break in. They want to get minutes and rightfully so you loan them out with an option. So I think those are just kind of those you know, comparisons to draw between Milan and Arsenal. A lot of you know, poor decision makings with regards to certain players. And, you know, I try and tell people all the time that everyone looks at the players that a club can buy. But I think it's if you have a stable ownership and then you can have that manager who knows what they're doing and what they want in their squad, their makeup, then you can kind of start, you know, building and assembling a winning team. And I think that's kind of where these two clubs have struggled. I have a question for you, Matt. Something that it feels like it happens more often in Italian football than maybe in any other major football league, where you have transfers of players between rival clubs and, you know, big names as well. I mean, for example, in the last five years, Gonzalo Higuain has played for Napoli, Juventus and AC Milan. There was a thing a couple of years ago where Bonucci was loaned to Milan and didn't quite work out. And he went back to Juventus. Even going a bit further back, you had Andrea Pirlo, who was a legend at AC Milan and then went to Juventus, where he accomplished other things after his contract ran out. Why do you think that that is perhaps more a part of the Italian football culture than it is elsewhere? And also, how does it feel as a fan to see players arrive from rival teams or your players join rivals on a more frequent basis, especially when perhaps the ultra culture is also more pronounced in Italy than certainly in England? Well, I think, you know, with players moving within the league, the Pirlo situation is a really interesting one. I know there's a lot of Milan fans who are very divided on this. And for me personally, I think, look, you know, he had the opportunity to go to a team like Juventus who welcomed him with open arms, a very enticing project on the rise, a good manager who, you know, really had ambitions for the club to do big things. And Milan kind of said, hey, we don't think that you're really worth this X amount of money. We don't consider you a key role to this project going forward. Um, and, and I found it fascinating too, because Allegri was kind of at the heart of that, right? And for a player who's done so much and accomplished so much in a Milan uniform, for him to no longer be 
deemed useful when you have certain players in the squad and you're like, wait, he's definitely better than most of these guys, even on his probably his worst day. So I think it's one of those things where the reason why I see a lot of, at least if we're talking about Italian internationals moving within the league, I do feel that most of the times they're very territorial. They're very loyal to their, their home base. I think Bonucci was another one, right? If there was interest between Chelsea and Manchester City, Pep Guardiola apparently wanted him, but he had um, family things that he had to take care of and it was just best for him to stay in Italy. So what did he do? He went to Milan, which was unheard of. And then he went back to Juventus. So like, I think it's, it's one of those things too, where you had to kind of throw all these factors in. And then you throw in the fact that in Italy, you know, there's a very select few that can actually afford to make these big sort of coups, right? I think Gonzalo Iguain was a rare one. Obviously, many Napoli fans are still outraged by that and rightfully so. But I think at the end of the day, I, there's a lot of parts of football in general that I don't think many people can kind of separate, like the financial side versus the kind of romanticism they have, like the attraction towards a player. The landscape of the game is different. The market's different, right? So, you know, for me as a fan, like if I saw a guy like Kaká leave for Juventus now, I'd probably say, yeah, that's kind of what the business is. It would hurt. Obviously, he's going to a rival in the league. But at the same time, I think for people to compare, like, you know, this type of player would never leave for a rival. You know, like a Maldini would never leave for a rival. It's like the money's different. The challenges are different. The landscape is entirely different. So I think it's really hard to compare. But I think myself, I can learn how to separate the two. I know some people are a little more tied to a certain player, a certain club. I know, how, again, how many people were outraged when Pirlo left and they'll never forgive him no matter you know how much success he had at the club, no matter how influential he was to the success they had in the 2000s. I guess also adding to that, Sully Montari clearly loved the city of Milan because <laughs> yeah. he randomly played for both teams as well. But yeah, maybe that was a more of a, a quirky one compared to the standard one. I mean, can you really blame him once you've seen Lake Como and your contract you know, is done at one of the clubs? I think you're going to want to hang around, so you might yeah. go to the other I mean, one. fair enough. Either of those feel superior in comparison to Portsmouth, so. <laughs> From Mentari, yeah. <laughs> Serie A, in my lifetime at least, has mostly been looked at as a league with an older demographic when it comes to the players. But from what I can see, the tides are beginning to shift. For instance, AC Milan, who Matt supports, have an abundance of youngsters in and around their first team, and they aren't the only ones. So I want us to talk about a couple of exciting prospects who may well become the new icons of Serie A for years to come. The player I have chosen, however, seems to be at a real crossroads in his career, and may perhaps even be on his way out of the club sooner rather than later, if rumors are to be believed. I'm extra curious to know what Matt has to say about him, it's Lucas Paqueta, who arrived at Milan from Flamengo in January 2019 with a massive reputation in Brazil. And I think that the expectation was that he would go on to be hugely influential in the Milan team, who probably needed that type of creative builder at the time. Likewise, he's been touted to also be a big part of the national team setup, having already been capped 11 times for Brazil at the age of just 22. One way or another, though, I think I'm not being too harsh when I say that it hasn't really worked out for Paqueta at Milan since he moved. Matt, what can you tell us about Lucas Paqueta? Well, he's one of those players, I think, you know, you see those sort of glimpses, you see instances where he does tease and flirt with being that sort of expensive player that they purchased. And, you know, again, I, I think it's one of those things where Milan have had such bad luck with transfers. Um, but not only that, a lot of the luck and a lot of things they missed luck or misfortune they've created and they put on themselves, right? I think, you know, changing managers, um, you know, what seems like every season, right? You know, the, when we talk about Pocketa specifically, he had Gattuso, then he had Giancarlo, he had Pioli. And, and in a matter of a, a year, year and a half, it's really difficult to adjust to a whole new way of living, a whole new style of football. When you have three managers, you're constantly changing the kind of structure of your squad, the structure of the style of football you want to play. And look, I think there's instances where we do see Pocketa look very sharp. And, you know, he has the flair, he has the sort of classic Brazilian style of football that, you know, Milan invested in but I think at the same time he's going to be one of those many players that have just struggled from the lack of stability at the club I think if you have a manager who can put trust in him being the forward player the number 10 type of player he can be that we did see quite a bit of Flamengo when we have seen in spurts for the Brazilian national team I think he can be a very very promising young player and that's one of those things too where I also contribute to in many ways the Gabi Gol situation right you know Gabi Gol he goes from Brazil he goes to Inter then you have managers constantly changing he barely plays he goes back to Brazil he's a superstar again and he gives you reason to believe that he can maybe come back to Europe one day 
But I think it's one of those things where if you're going to buy a player outside of Europe, even outside of your actual country itself, I think you have to look at how you can create an environment for these players to have a level of comfort to adapt and grow. And I think there are certain clubs who do a really good job of that. I think Atalanta are fantastic with that in the sense that they can you know, expand outside Italy and if you'll go into their, their deep scouting network and get players that kind of come in that fit the system, fit the building of Gasparini wants, but also culturally they buy into the progressive style of football that he wants to play. Whereas I think what Milan, it's just there's so much fluctuation year to year about how they want to play, what their vision is, who's making the decisions, you know, so on and so forth. And then you throw on the fact that, again, they are Milan. There's a lot of pressure to succeed now. And then you throw the, the fact that he came here for 35 million euro, upwards of 40. There's a lot of pressure here for a young player to be the savior. And look, I think Paketa, whether or not he stays a Milan, that remains to be seen. I think he's got some things in his game that he needs to just simplify. Not always is the style of football going to translate over to Italy, where it's a little bit more tactically advanced. And they kind of really could hone in and kind of cradle and ultimately close down on that style of football that he likes to play right get on the ball make a guy miss you know you know, play this sort of samba mentality but I, I don't know I think sometimes he gets the ball in the right positions and then instead of making the simple executed pass he tries to be too cute with it and overcomplicates things instead of just progressing the ball forward so that's kind of how I've observed this time I don't think he's been given nearly as much of a fair shot in the sense again of all this the turmoil and the instability but I do hope he has a good future because he does seem like a good kid a player that does really want to thrive here and I think just the expectations right now are just a little bit too heavy on him. Do you think potentially he might be in, in need of just a break from some football? He joined in January having just completed an entire season in Brazil. Yeah. Obviously he was, you know, off the back of that season is why you signed him. He had a great season, but he might have been a little bit out of gas, so to speak. Maybe if at the end of this season he gets a bit of time to recharge, maybe we'll see a, a real Lucas Paqueta next time. It's, it's definitely possible. I mean, I know there, there has been interest from several clubs. I know Fiorentina has been talked about quite a bit with a possible swap with Milinkovic. I think that would be uh, something that does appeal to Milan fans, just uh, specifically because they do need another central defender. And Milinkovic is very much a quality young central defender, so he would fit the billing of what they're looking to do going forward. But, you know, with Paqueta, I think you can get a manager who entrusts him, gives him the faith to play his style of football that doesn't infringe on what he likes to do. I think, yeah, he can be a success, but maybe it's not in Italy. Maybe it's in France where, you know, Leonardo handpicked him to come to Milan and he still has some sort of admiration and desire to want to bring him to Paris. So that seems like that's not going to go away. But I'm not going to base his entire career as a player based on what he did at Milan. I think at the end of the day, if he does leave at, you know, within the next couple months or the next year, I think he does have a really bright future. And I I think most people are going to blame, you know, maybe his kind of struggle to, you know, get that momentum off the off the ground um, on the fact that Milan were just in a really difficult spot and it was kind of not the right timing. Well, from one youngster playing their trade in Italy to another, someone I'd like to talk about as well is Sandro Tonali. Tonali is a midfielder who plays for Brescia. He's made three senior appearances for Italy, and I think he's someone who will be hearing a lot more of. He's been described, understandably, as the heir to Andrea Pirlo, partly because of the correlation in his career. They both start out in Brescia, but also when you see him play, he has this very silkly, deep-lying playmaker style, which He's got the seems effortless. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There is definitely that inspiration, but Pirlo actually said of Tonali, he is another type of player. He's much more complete, both in the defensive phase and when he sets up. He is a mix between my characteristics and those of other players. And he's also drawn comparisons to players like Luka Modric, Steven Gerrard. I mean, you couldn't really forge a more complete midfielder if you picked three people, Modric, Pirlo and Gerrard, to be a modern central midfielder. But Italy, who have in recent years maybe lacked elite midfielders, especially in the international team, now have a group of young players coming through, including Tonali. I just want to get a sense from you guys. How far do you think he could go? What could his impact be on the national team? And where will his career take him? I mean, Yoni, based on the description you've given of him and the comparison <laughs> of players that Tonali has been compared to, you've got to assume that he's going to the very top. I don't know what Matt thinks about it. I don't know if you see Tonali making a move within Syria, or if he's more the kind of guy that's going to go straight to a Barcelona or Real Madrid? I mean, what do you think, having probably watched more of him than I have? I think Tonali's, he's staying at Syria. I think, you know, from the very beginning, I think the top clubs that have been linked to him, it's been uh, the normal, the regular suspects, right? Juventus, Napoli, Inter, Milan in no order. But it seems as though that, um, according to, you know, Fabrizio Romano, 
um, you know, that enter a really important position. I think, you know, they're the sort of project that um, I think, you know, when you look at top to bottom, you look at the coach, you look at where he would slot in there. I think he would fit in really, really well at Inter. I would love him at Milan. Of course, he, he, he grew up a huge Catuso fan. Um, I just think that obviously he, he's got some sort of love for the club, no doubt. I rate Tonali quite well. You know, everything you guys said about him um, and everything that Pirlo said about him, you know, I think is very true. I think if you watch his, his debut season in the Italian top flight this year and you just look at the metrics, right? He's a player that, you know, he does a little bit of everything. I think Pirlo is one of those players that, you know, obviously he made the transition from more of a playmaker to a deep line playmaker. But I think when you look at Tonali's game, it's a little bit more well-rounded, a little bit more complete in the sense that he can drive forward. He is a really good dribbler. Um, he's amongst one of the best in Serie A in terms of successful dribble rate. So he does a lot of things going forward to help you in the final third. And obviously, you know, he's got the, the hair. He's got the brush of ties. He's, he kind of checks off all the boxes appearance-wise. But then when you look at his game, you know, to Pirlo's point, there are some comparisons, yes, but there are some differences in the sense that you think Tonali can do quite a bit more than what maybe Pirlo was able to do. Although Pirlo was so great at a very few things, and that's what made him so special. I think it's quite clear that I think Inter are really in the lead for Tonali. I don't see him leaving for a PSG. I don't see him leaving for a Real Madrid Barcelona right now, at least. I think long-term, you know, Italy fans are very much happy to have a guy with Tonali. It's also really refreshing to have options. It's a very exciting time to be um, an Azzurri fan, for sure. I can't remember the last time this country had this much midfield depth. And I, I just think Tonali is going to be one of those players that, you know, when we look back at this recording uh, and many recordings you know, before this, that we say, wow, Tonali really was destined for greatness and destined to be the next great Italian midfielder. So, Matt, do you think Tonali's going to make this move this summer, or are we going to wait to see him at Euro 2020 that will actually be happening in 2021, and then he's going to make like a massive move after he's a star of that tournament? I think he moves this summer. Absolutely. I think Brescia's, they're going to go, they're going to get the drop. I think it's quite clear their owner, Massimo Salino, has been pretty much saying that, you know, we're not going to give, give him away for cheap. But I think it's quite clear that he it's the inevitable, right? It's going to happen. I think as some team, especially in this climate, right, you know, with the whole COVID-19 and, you know, kind of the financial fallout some of these clubs are, are facing right now, there are certain teams that just you can't afford to keep a player that you can get money for right now. And that sort of money is something that I don't think Russia will be able to turn down. And look, I think if you're a team like Russia, your owner, like Salino, you kind of knew this was coming. I think this is not like Tonali's been some sort of, quiet prospect who just burst onto the scene this year in many ways like a Castrovilli at Fiorentina but I think Tonali was already drawing rave reviews and great you know reaction from the season he had at Serie B last year so I think it's only a matter of time before this move gets completed Brescia are going to be relegated um, I think Inter barring any sort of infiltration from you know Napoli and Milan to get Tonali I think he's definitely headed to Inter I think everything just kind of seems like it's in place there <laughs> Pick That One Out is a feature where one of the team has to channel their inner Motson or Pierce and commentate on a famous goal from the past. Today it's my turn, and to confirm, all the goals you are about to hear are related to Italian football in one way or another. So let me just play the first one. The cross comes in from the right-hand side of the pitch and it's cleared. Oh, one flick, two flick, three flick. Oh, I say, what a goal. Right on the volley. That is fantastic. A volley from a player on an Italian club. Yes, that is correct. And some flicks in the build-up. Is this in in Serie A or is this in like a European competition? This is in Serie A. Is it from this season? No, it's not. It's from 10 years ago. Is it a Brazilian? It might be a Brazilian. I was going to say Ronaldinho, but it reminds me more of something you might have done at Barcelona than at Milan. It's not Ronaldinho. Okay. I think I may know. I'm not sure, though. I, I think I have a name, but 2010, <laughs> and I, I think I got the name, though. Is it the Milan player? Um, he does play for, well, he did play for a team in Milan. Maybe not. Mike Cohn. Yes, it was uh, Mike Okay, I had a feeling like it was Mike Cohn. <laughs> <laughs> it was Mike Cohn's goal against Juventus in 2010. Yes, um, okay. If you haven't watched it in a while, definitely check it out. It's a nice finish where he sort of, yeah, he gets on the edge of the box, flicks it up a few times and volleys it in. But anyway, that was the first one. Let me play the second one now. 
they really need to find a way to get back into their match but they've just lost the ball here they play it out and they found their playmaker who plays a wonderful through ball and now the strikers through on goal he sticked it over the goalie what a goal there's surely no way back for them now that was wonderful football Apologies for losing my voice at the end of that. There you go. <laughs> Getting too excited. Yeah. Is this the national team? It's not, no. Uh, one thing I will say is that one person on this call will remember the goal fondly, but maybe not the match fondly. I was almost thinking it was Inter against Chelsea. No. So it's AC Milan. It's an AC Milan game, yeah. Is, is it, it a European game? Yes, a very important European game. Was it against Barcelona? No. Need oh. Any is this Istanbul? Istanbul, yes. It was at Istanbul. Oh, no, I don't even want to. <laughs> I, did, I did feel a bit cruel putting this in, but I did choose a very good goal. Was it Crespo? Was it um, the chip? Was it that little chip he had, the pass from Kaká? Yes, it was, yes. Hey, Kaito, I'm Matt, okay. you're right. Yeah, it's Crespo's chip against uh, Liverpool, which... The chip was even sensational. I, I even look back at it. Like, I, I think everyone kind of you know, applauds the pass from Kaká, and it was fantastic, yeah. but like... That cool finish from Crespo was... Yeah. I love that yeah. so much. Takes it so early, doesn't he? Like, yeah. it's so unexpected. And it just falls due that completely. At that point, you got to be, as a Milan fan, like, you're thinking, like, man, like, this one's... <laughs> like, yeah. you know, when you're scoring those sorts of goals, like, not fluky, anything, just, like, really well executed, you're thinking, man, we're clear. Like, this is, this is wrapped up. Oh man! Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. We'll leave it. We'll leave it there, Matt. We'll leave it there. But I okay. do have um, one more clip. How important will this corner prove to be? The ball is whipped into the area. The player rises. Goal! What a header! The players have gone wild. They're back in the game. I have a suspicion of this one. Is it in a World Cup final? It might be in a World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking header, a famous header, you know? Well, uh, I mean, I'll let Yanni, you haven't, did, have you named one of these yet? I'll let you go for it. No, well, uh, it's, a, it's a tap in for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Marco Materazzi rising above Patrick Vieira, I think, to I think... head Italy level in the 2006 World Cup final. Obviously, I, I watched the goal earlier today, and he does rise really, he gets really high off the ground, almost Ronaldo esque in a way. Then. But yeah, another great goal for the Italian football side. Matt, what, what do you think of Marco Materazzi? He was obviously quite a, an interesting character in football. I mean, I imagine in Serie A, he's a well-loved figure. But what, what, what do Milan fans kind of think of him, given obviously he was more of a, an interman? I think he's one of those players, look, when the gloves are off and the dust settles, um, you kind of really just respect, I think, the, his dedication to the game. The fact that he just did everything he could to win. Obviously, you all know what happened with his altercation with Zidane. Uh, whatever he said, his choice towards you, who, who really knows the exact way that went down. But I think at the end of the day, you know, rivalries like the uh, Milan Inter rivalry uh, need those sorts of personalities. Um, and I think many ways, you know, Materazzi's probably – Inter's version of what Gattuso is to Milan. I think there's so many people that would just be so pissed off at Gattuso and just not like him. But I think he's someone you always want in your corner in a very feisty affair. And I think, you know, there's many kind of parallels to draw between those two players in terms of that kind of their moniker, their mentality, their passion towards the game. And look, I think, you know, yes, he's in the corner of the other, the other the club I just dislike. But I think at the same time, when you pull in that blue shirt for the Italian national team, especially in that year, everyone was kind of really unified by you know, the players, regardless of what their affiliations were at the club level. So, yeah, Materazzi, I think, is a fundamental player for Italian football history, um, for the goals for the national team, yes, but also his success for Inter. And I think, um, you know, yeah, he's, he's built quite a reputation over the years. He's also part of two of the most iconic football photos ever. I mean, obviously, there's the Zidane headbutt. Yeah. But was it, he also in that one with, is it Roy Costa? When, like, yeah. it's the Milan derby yeah, the and you've got all the flares yeah. flying on the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. In the right place. The softer the right side of him, right? I don't think even people <laughs> think that's kind of what Materazzi defined him as. He kind of like a tale of two evils, right? Yeah. <laughs> he also randomly played for Everton for a season. Yeah, he did. A long time ago. I don't think he was particularly good either. Well, he can't have been because he wasn't there long. That's like the same thing too with Gattuso playing for, for Rangers, right? Oh, yeah. Like, everyone thinks of like you know, him as like a Milan guy and rightfully so, right? But like he kind of like, oh, there's that little spell within that Rangers. So it's, that's always kind of funny.
in August 1995, Andrea Silenzi made his debut for Nottingham Forest. In doing so, he became the first Italian to play in the Premier League. Since Silenzi made his debut, a further 75 Italians have gone on to play in the top flight of English football. It's a long list, but who for you stands out as a great Italian to grace the Premier League? Gianfranco Zola. I mean, everyone's had very, you know, varying levels of success. You know, Balotelli, obviously the only assist he got in Premier League history, or I think at City, um, obviously the big goal for Sergio Aguero for the City, uh, you know, without winning the title. Um, my boy Fabio Berini. Uh, there's so many guys, uh, you know, Zappa Costa, some of the more recent ones, but I think Zola, I think you'll, and specifically, I think he's the first one that comes to mind as being like as such a true class footballer to play in the Premier League and, and play really exceptionally well for Chelsea. Yeah, what a fantastic footballer. Yoni, um, what about you? Do you have any players that you think of fondly, perhaps for being good or not so good? <laughs> well, yeah, the, this isn't someone who quite reached the levels that Zola did. Also, just on that, I think there's something with Italian players that there aren't actually that many examples of successes in the Premier League. Zola stands out, but mm-hmm. the ones that are successes are like really, really just embraced by their clubs in a way that other players aren't necessarily even right. great players. Mm-hmm. You think of Zola, Di Canio, Viali, these sorts of players where the club just almost becomes them and they become the club. But someone who that definitely didn't happen for is Alberto Aquilani, who joined Liverpool in 2009, in theory to replace Xabi Alonso, who just left for Real Madrid. He joined for £17.1 million. It was a time where Liverpool were under the um, Hicks and Gillette ownership. They were very shrewd at the time because they were paying this loan back to Royal Bank of Scotland. And Rafa Benitez actually wanted David Silva to come in as a replacement. And you can see with hindsight that that would have been a probably better and more suitable addition to the squad. But it didn't work out for Aquilani. He was injured when he got there. He made, I think, 10 starts in his one and only Premier League season. And there was also an issue with him adapting to the culture, I think. It wasn't just because he was injured, but the injuries meant that he was isolated from the rest of the squad. And he had a particular thing about driving. There was an interview in The Athletic with various Liverpool people at the time about the Aquilani transfer. And in that, Jamie Carragher said, in Italy, they gave out on-the-spot fines for being on your phone when you're driving. But Alberto thought he could just sort of pay it off by giving the police cash. We had to explain to him that that wasn't how things were done in England. It looked like he was trying to pay them off. Now... That's just, a, I guess, a kind of whimsical illustration of how it didn't work out for him in England. But after Liverpool, he went to, I think, Juventus on loan. Then he spent a season at Milan on loan. I mean, Matt, what are your memories of him as a player of his time at Milan as well? Did we ever really see what he could have become or was he just overrated from the beginning? Um, I think there was, he was one of those fascinating cases of a player just you know, having the ability. And I'm not going to directly compare the two players in terms of the quality because I think you you guys would probably disagree on this but I think of like a Ricardo Charisma type where I think people look at his career and they're like they see some of the things he pulls off and you're thinking like how and why didn't this guy do more with his career with Aquilani I mean maybe at a, low, a lower scale or lower level I looked at the player coming up and I think okay like this player he's going to be a very very good midfield he's going to have a nice, nice long career but bounce between club to club you know having sort of difficulty settling in and just really kind of grounding his craft and being a solution somewhere I think as you build the kind of catalog of Italian internationals to apply their trade elsewhere you start to see that there are more definitely more failures and successes um, and then that's why you kind of you go, you go back to what we said off the top about players just wanting to kind of stay in their country you know there's a select handful of uh, internationals and, and players from different countries that do like to test the waters and explore but I think there's something about Italian specifically that they just seem to just really thrive and just feel very much comfortable being in Italy being at home and I think you know even Bacolani again had some spurts had some moments where he looked pretty solid I think Milan fans were probably thinking that ah, maybe he has a place on the squad because I think you know there's a lot of outcasts that tend to or players that are kind of on the fringe that tend to go to Milan and then they kind of have a pretty solid you know season or two and then Milan fans kind of fall in love with them i.e. Adel Trapt right I think he had a very strong season for Milan many people were thinking quite well, a sign this guy because we're not going to get much better than him um and then he goes and he's up at fika and you know the, the rest is history but I, yeah i just think that with aqualani it, it's one of those frustrating cases of a player that just really mishandled his potential mishandled you know the ability he did have and maybe didn't use it in the right ways to to have a more prolific more uh, sustained career success 
It's funny, I was just looking to make sure that I was getting the time frame right. Obviously, the injury didn't allow him to play too much, but he was at Liverpool at a time when they had Javier Mascherano. And considering the success that Aquilani was able to forge alongside Daniel De Rossi in his Roma time, you'd think maybe there could have been like a partnership in there uh, potentially. But yeah, it was a massive failure. And uh, I think he probably spent the most time for the rest of his career at Fiorentina afterwards. Am I right? Yeah. Did he have any success for La Viola? Um, he was a he was a moderate player. I don't think he was a, a world beater or player that kind of set the league alight. But I think you know he maybe found a way to have some stability in his career. I think and I think there's also levels to certain players, right? Like you get to a certain point where you're kind of just looking to play a key role in a certain squad. And I think we see that many times where, as a fan of Balotelli, that's kind of what I'm hoping for him. I was hoping he would go to a team like Russia and, you know, yeah, maybe not, you know, score 20, 30 goals or be the player that we all thought he would be, but stay there for a couple of years, maybe help them, you know, get a lot of fanfare, a lot of attention, maybe keep them up, you know, have some good seasons there and kind of just have that story tell at least somewhat ending to his career. But it's one of those things with Aquilani too, where, um, it, you know, it just, it just didn't seem to work out. And look, he's, it wasn't the first, he's not going to be the last. I do have another Italian player to move to the Premier League that I wanted to bring up. And this guy was not really in the same bracket as far as expectation, although he probably did better than Aquilani in his time in England. And it's uh, Alessandro Diamanti, who also only spent one season at his kind of main club. And that's uh, West Ham, of course, that he signed for from Livorno in 2009. And he was a great player to watch. He played with a real tenacity and swagger at the same time, which honestly kind of matched up to his own personal style. He always had one of his hands taped when he was playing, how Jamie Vardy seems to do these days. <laughs> like a pro club type thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like he's built a player on FIFA, like you said. And then otherwise his hair was just like a sight to behold. I don't even really know how to describe his hair. But he was just this fascinating personality. The curls and stuff in the band, yeah. And he had just a ridiculously good left foot. He was definitely like a dead ball specialist which makes sense. You see, he scored eight goals in 30 games at West Ham. Only three of them were from open play. So five of them would have been set pieces. And apparently, and I, I do remember this when I was looking him up, his first goal was a penalty. And it mentions in the article that he kind of stumbled on his run-up and double-kicked the ball with both of his feet, potentially. And I think I do kind of remember that. But it's quite a unique... Yeah, I remember that, yeah. First goal. Otherwise, he, uh, in the one season that he did spend at the bowling ground, he was voted uh, runner-up hammer of the year behind Scott Parker. So he was obviously a bit of a fan favorite. In the same way, maybe that West Ham already had that affiliation to a Di Canio. Can't compare their two careers at the club, but obviously maybe they, you know, they took a shining to Diamanti. And then randomly, he did end up in China. And even stranger than that, he was loaned to Watford for half a season in 2015. And he made three appearances. And I honestly have no recollection of that whatsoever. And he's on the books of uh, Western United FC. He plays in Australia these days. So he's very well-traveled as well, Diamanti. Do you have any opinion or like feelings towards Alessandro Diamanti, Matt? Yeah, another one of those players too, I think he has tons of ability. I think you know, maybe he didn't show it as often or maybe he wasn't the sexiest player in terms of the way he kind of demonstrated it. But I think he was always one of those players where like once he was over the ball, he was always a threat to kind of bury one. Again, wand of a left foot. You know, he had some brief moments for the Thai national team. They thought, okay, maybe this guy's onto something. Maybe he's going to be a special player for the Thai national team. Again, one of those cases where perhaps people expected more. Perhaps maybe what he was was exactly what he should have been. But I, I think for me, my impression of Diamante, it always goes back to his free kick specialist. That, that sort of trait that he had to pull out those sort of wonderful goals from set pieces and I think you, you look at the numbers and you think, okay, well, why would he want to leave? Like, what's the case? And I think, I don't, I don't know. And in many ways, you look, a very short-lived spell, a fan favorite, one season, same thing, even maybe a half season, is Patrick Gutrona, right? The Wolves fans completely loved him. They gravitated towards him immediately, the whole song they had and things like that. And look, maybe it was a comfort thing. So that's kind of what I like to tend to boil it down to. I don't think there's much out there in terms of him being kind of a you know, disruptive force in the changing room. Or I just think it's one of those things where you kind of test it and then you want to go back to a more normal, comfortable situation. I think that's kind of what Diamante was. But yeah, I definitely a player on his day. He can really do some good things for you. I mean, the thing about Diamante that's quite interesting was obviously... West Ham was the club he mainly played for in England. I also didn't remember that he was at Watford. That's quite funny. But um, I guess a lot of his qualities were similar to that of Dimitri Payet, who would obviously go on to um, have another great season at West Ham. So, yeah, it's funny. He was almost like the kind of heir to Di Canio and the precursor to Mr Payet. A great player. I remember they also had, what was he called? Dimichele, West Ham. Yeah. He was also knocking about West Ham. They love their Italian striker, attacking midfielder, to go and wreak havoc there. Yeah, and they obviously love an entertainer as well. Payet, 
Di Canio, Diamante, just the style of football, regardless of the end product, it's good to watch. So now we should talk about one of the most successful men's teams out there. Italy have won four World Cups, only Brazil have won more. Now, their last one was in 2006, and arguably since then, they haven't reached the heights that they have historically. They reached the 2012 European Championships final, of course, but that was almost surprising given the squad they had at the time. Something that Italy have been famed for over the years is their defensive solidity. They've always had world-class goalkeepers. But as we've alluded to earlier in the episode, they've missed real quality in midfield and up front in recent years. But now with a new generation of players, including Sandro Tonali, Nico Barella, Federico Chiesa, Donnarumma at the back and Immobile on this hot streak back in the national reckoning, what can we expect from them going forward? Obviously, they didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup, which was a real low point for them in their recent history. But they've got some really exciting players. And in the first episode we recorded of this were my dark horses, or maybe just horses for the European Championships, which will now take place next year. Do we think that Italy are going to be a world force once again on the football stage? It would appear that obviously there's been a, a bad period for Italy in recent times, but they've got so many young, exciting players. It's hard to imagine bearing that in mind and combined with, you know, Italy's illustrious history, as you mentioned, Yoni, it would be a big shock if they didn't get to the latter stages of, if not the next tournament, certainly the World Cup in Qatar, you'd think that that could be another potential good one for them. A bit like for Holland in a way, where maybe not quite to the same level as Italy, but after a few rough years, they've kind of regrouped, they've got a few new players in the team. And actually, yeah, going back to Italy, I, I would say that, yes, yeah, certainly they should be one of the best teams in Europe, if not the world, for the next few tournaments. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, it's one of those cases where I think, you know, in 2018, the actual makeup of the squad, you know, obviously Ventura did a horrendous job. It's putting it, you know, lightly with the team that he had in terms of selections, in terms of waiting so long to bring Jorginho into the fold, who was, you know, probably a little close to go choosing Brazil. Uh, you're going for De Rossi when they were down a goal and needed a goal versus uh, going for a guy like Lorenzo Insignia. There's some very clueless decision-making by Ventura. And uh, generally speaking, I think it was very difficult for them post-World Cup 2006. But I think the fact that they've been able to turn this around so quickly is a testament to the job that Roberto Mancini has done. I, I know everyone was kind of hoping for a Conte reunion or, you know, maybe another manager. But I think Mancini's come in here and he's really shown faith in the youth players and he's really made them a big key focal point for the current makeup of the squad while also maintaining some sort of semblance of the old guard, right? With, you know, Chiellini probably maybe still in, in the equation for, for next year. I know we'll have to see how he kind of, you know, goes on. I know he just extended for another year. Buffon, I think he's done with the national team. Of course, Donnarumma, I think, is still the number one. Bonucci, you know, Romagnoli's coming up defensively. Uh, Gianluca Mancini, who can play as a right back, a central defender, has even played in the midfield for Roma. So if you look at the actual makeup of the Italian national team squad now, the midfield is, again, really well stocked with talent and a lot of young talent, a lot of diversity there. Great balance. I know there's a lot of criticism or concern about whether or not Balotti and Immobile can be that sort of strike pair up front and replicate what they've done domestically for the country. I know Mobley's had a fantastic season. He probably could go on to break Gonzalo Higuain's uh, single season goal record set at Napoli in 2015-2016 with 36. But I think, you know, everyone's looking on him to be the guy, the front man for the attack. For me, the biggest area of improvement that is needed is definitely at the fullback position slash wingback. I, I don't think they're necessarily well-equipped in those positions to have as complete of a squad as they want. But generally speaking, I think this is the most excited and most healthy and stable Azuri squad we've seen in quite some time in terms of its depth and numbers, but also the fact that you do have players, both young, very few old, but you also have a lot of players in their prime, their careers ready to make a difference right now. I mean, I didn't even mention Nico Lasagnolo either. Who was injured, but I just think that you know maybe Italy is kind of in that sort of period now where Belgium was at the 2014 World Cup. Obvious amounts of talent, top to bottom, but maybe need a tournament under their belt to kind of really show you know, and have that sort of feeling of what it takes to play on the main stage. So definitely going to be storylines with this team and things to watch for. But I think just another year to prepare after a near flawless, near mint qualifying, which they were undefeated. I think it will serve them well, and I think it will only bring this team that much closer together and have them in a position to succeed at the Euro. 
you mentioned we were talking about obviously like a lot of those great attacking players, Zaniolo, Barella, uh, Chiesa, and then the forwards, Velotti and Immobile. But we did touch on the defense with the changing of the guard. You mentioned Chiellini getting towards the end of his international career. Alessio Romagnoli, who plays for your club, is kind of waiting in the wings and has been for a while as, as his successor. And then you mentioned the, the wingback positions. I know there's another player you have at Milan, uh, Davide Calabria, who at one point at least was touted very highly. Do you think that given these teams that typically go on to win these tournaments, Spain, Germany, Italy back in the day, who have just epic defensive lines, will Italy's defensive line be able to match up to their newly talented midfield and attack? I think it's possible. I think for, for many years, everyone's sort of looked at the defensive side and saying, okay, well, at least if they don't score, they don't do this, they don't do that. At least we can be ensured that we're well-stocked defensively and we have a legendary goalkeeper to kind of bail us out. And I think the kind of dynamic and overall philosophy is changing a little bit in the sense that Italy are going to show people that they can play a more progressive, more modern style that's maybe against the grain of what they're used to playing. You maybe, you know, a guy like Francesco Acerbi isn't a Bonucci type level or a Chiellini type level defender. But I think what he's been able to accomplish at Lazio as the captain this year in, in a title chase for them, you know, you can make a great case that you know, he may have been the second central defender to start alongside Bonucci, given the form he has been this year, given the fact that Mancini has shown a really great trust in him. I think, yes, you know, you may have some players that are kind of towards the tail end of their career. Um, and maybe you have some players that, look, Mattia Caldara and Daniele Rugani were supposed to be deemed a better prospect ahead of Romagnoli. And maybe Romagnoli going to Milan and having to start and playing in a difficult environment, you know, taking on the burden of being a main starter for them, maybe has kind of molded him to the, being the, the central defender he is today. I, I think if you look at the, the overall squad dynamic of this team, I think there's, again, a, quite a bit of balance. You have some you have some leaders who've been there, who know how to, what it takes to bounce back, to get through some difficult times. You know, you have the leadership, you have the quality, you have a technical ability. So I think this is, I, I can't remember the last time in Italy was this balanced top to bottom. Every team is going to have their sort of area of weakness or area of deficiency to an extent. And I think, look, in a short tournament, Italian coaches have proven that they can maybe redefine the way certain players play. And I think you know, a prime example of that is Conte, what he was able to do to guys like Graziano Pelle, Eder, Giaccarini, um, even you know, kind of reinvent on, Antonio Candreva as, into like a wingback type player where he has always been sort of a right winger. So a little bit more time underneath the belt for Mancini to kind of assess the squad and, and see what players do come along um, in the next season. Who knows? Maybe you'll have guys like Manuel Lazzari. Maybe you have guys like Andrea Conti. You'll be healthy. They do you'll prove and convince. I don't think they're going to make or break you per se. But I think if, look, if you're a team that like Italy is looking to be like a cream of the crop, like a top three, top five team, I think you really do need to have a little bit better in that area. And I think that's what Italy fans are really hoping for. Again, the stars have to align, right? I think Immobile, the way he's scoring now, he's the favorite to be the starter. But if he doesn't deliver up front, you got to wonder how far Italy can go when they don't have their main striker not doing what he needs to do. Chiesa being an inexperienced player who probably play as a secondary striker or Lorenzo Insigne. So, you know, there's a lot are resting on a couple of players to have the really big performances and to be the sort of player they are for club to do that for country. It's kind of set up for hopefully Immobile to have a good tournament because there yeah. are so many talented, creative players around him and athletic players too with these youthful stars coming through that you'd think if there's someone on good form in that tournament, they're going to you know, have a chance to be towards top scorer, especially if the team can get towards the latter stages. Yeah, I, I had a look at the squad for the 2006 World Cup recently and the strikers Italy took to that. They had Luca Toni, Iacinta, Inzaghi, Giladino, Totti and Del Piero. And like that's depth and they, like they haven't had that since then. I mean, like who yeah. does, but they've got a long way to come back to that level of elite attacking talent and not being so reliant on one goal scorer. 100%. And I think a lot of people are hopeful that Belotti can return to form. It wasn't too long ago where Urbano Cairo, the owner for Torino, was demanding 100 million for him. And he had a 25-26 goal season where he was scoring with the likes of Dzeko, uh, Dries Mertens and Yamari Cardi. So he's still very young, but... Look, a lot can change in a year, right? You know, Zaniolo could come back. He could be a, a really great player. Same thing with Bernadeschi. We haven't talked about him much. I know he's a very mixed player in the eyes of Juventus fans. I think in the sense that, you know, you buy him for 40 million from Fiorentina. You think you expect a little bit more from him. But at the same time, maybe a move does him well. He goes to another team in Italy. He gets starting minutes. He's the player that Juventus bought. 
And now you have a guy who's in form heading into a major tournament. So a lot can change in a year. And I think, you know, chances are we're going to be missing a player um, in this conversation that does make that team. And I think that's just really going to make it more interesting and more fascinating to see what things look like with the squad um, heading to that tournament. We've done the Bundesliga. We have done La Liga. Now it's time for the Serie A edition of the Blazers for Goalposts Fantasy Draft. Between the BFG team, we compiled a list of the best players in each position that Serie A has had to offer down the years that we've personally been following the league. So we're talking beginning from around the turn of the millennium. We randomly determined the draft order and took turns building our 11s. Consistently, so far, what hasn't felt random is how low down my pick ends up being, but oh well. Naming their team and listing their 11 first is Mr. First Pick. It's Billy Proudlock, a resident contributor to the pod. He's obviously not here, so I'll be reading it out for him. And I love the name that Billy has chosen for his team. He went with Atabanta. His team is as follows. In goal, he's got Julio Cesar. Left back, he's gone for Fabio Grosso, who scored that great goal in the semi-final against Germany. Then center halves are Nesta and Bonucci. And right back is Christian Zaccardo, who also won the World Cup and also liked a post that we did about Wolfsburg on our Instagram page. So I think Billy was throwing him like a courtesy inclusion there. Otherwise, we have in the midfield on the left, Rivaldo, center midfield of Zidane and Gattuso. And in true Serie A fashion of not really having a winger on the wing, but putting a center midfielder there anyway, we have Rui Costa on the right. Then up top for Billy's team is R9 Ronaldo, thinking about his Inter Milan days, and then Shevchenko. So that's Billy's team. Yanni, you had the second pick. I did. And my team name is Under Brescia. I think given this back five, they'd be able to withstand the sternest of examinations. You have probably one of, if not the greatest goalkeepers of all time, Gigi Buffon in goal. A back four from right to left of Gianluca Zambrotta. Lucio, who makes his second appearance in a draft pick of mine. Uh, Lilian Turam partners him at centre-back with Paolo Maldini on the left. Going across the midfield, you have Clarence Seydorf. Patrick Vieira, which is like a mixture of the AC Milan and then later into Inube Vieira's, which is basically peak Vieira there. Next to him is Daniele Zerosti with Dries Mertens, Napoli's all-time leading goalscorer, sort of supplying the ammunition from the wing with a very nostalgic front two of Gabriel Batigol Batistuta and Ballon d'Or winner George Weyer up front. Um, so that's under Brescia. Very nice, Yoni. So it's now my turn to reveal my team name and my team name is combining team I don't like in England with some food from Italy that I like very much so I've gone for West Palmer Ham. So in goal I have Toldo, at right back I have Cafu, I have a centre-back pairing of Philippe Mexis and Fabio Cannavaro and then on the left in defence I've got Alexandro. I've then got Ronaldinho one of the wings, although I'm sure he will roam all over the place. Um, I've then got Edgar Davids and Kaka in the middle of the pitch, and then Mo Salah causing havoc on the other side of the pitch. Finally, it's not the quickest front pairing, but they're two very skillful players, and I've got Alessandro Del Piero and Francesco Totti up front. I had the fourth pick. My team is called ACF Fiorentina Turner, and our club motto is simply the best, better than all the rest. In goal, I have Samir Handanovic, who somehow isn't even the best Slovenian goalkeeper in the world. Uh, he has to fight it out with Jan Oblak, but he's still pretty good, so he's my goalie. In defense from right to left, or left to right even, let's do it, I've got Javier Zanetti, who could play it right back if I needed him to, but he'll be my left back. And then I've got in the center of defense, Chiellini and Thiago Silva. On the right is Maicon, definitely not the Roma Maicon. This is, this is Inter Milan Maicon. And then midfield-wise, on the left, I've got Nedved, a centre midfield pairing of Esteban Cambiasso and Andrea Pirlo. On the right, we have Alexis Sanchez from his Udinese days, not the current Inter Milan Sanchez. And the strike force is Adriano and Antonio Di Natale. So John Walters also isn't here, but he had the last pick of the draft and wasn't available to join us at that time for the draft proceedings either. So given that John likes a hipster footballer or two, the rest of us picked his 11 for him and may or may not have had our own draft interests in mind at the time. But 
John has sent in some audio he recorded of himself reviewing the 11 that he ended up with, so I'll let him do the honours. Hello, Blazers for Goalposts podcast team. I hope everyone's well. Let's go see the Syria R draft. Uh, my team name is AC Me Rolling. So, in goal is Dida, terrifying man. Kolarov, baller. Nagatomo, also a brilliant player. Matarazzi and Cordoba as well. In midfield, you've got Nangalan. Sounds like a Dragon Ball Z character. We've got Hamsik and we've also got Kevin Prince Boateng, who was actually quite a cool player, uh, considering he played for Spurs. Spurs don't have many players like that. Uh, Mancini as well. And up front, we have got Macedonian legend, I believe. I hope he's Macedonian. It's uh, Pandev, who was a bit of a baller on a football manager, so I'll take that. And John Carew, Prince William's best mate. If you don't vote for this team, then you've got something wrong with you. Um, for reference, we put John Carew in there because John had the first pick of the La Liga episode draft and decided to pick John Carew as the first pick of the first round of that draft. So we stuck him back with John Carew, who I think played for Roma once upon a time. Otherwise, Matthew, now that you've heard our Serie A fantasy draft 11s, what do you make of them and whose was the best? It's tough, you know, when you, especially when you span many decades and you kind of, you know, you can, you can be selective with what generation of certain players you touched upon the Macon, you know, you choose which Macon version of him you want, right? Um, there was, there was one specific, I think it was Yorziani that had a very stocked defensive team that included Maldini, if I'm correct, right at left back, mm-hmm. Lucio, Taram, and then I think you had right back was Zambrota. Zambrota. I mean, that's, for me, that that defensive with Buffon in net. So I think you you, you have an Italian makeup team there. You have the mentality there, the Catenaccio type you know, mold of your squad there. That's tough. It's really tough. Um, I think I'm gonna go with your team. There, I think Joe. I think it may have been Joe who had Toti Del Piero up front. I did. Which is ridiculous, right? <laughs> to think that you could have both those those two guys up front um, and not pick them. Um, but at the same time, I think, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a Maldini fanboy. That's my guy. It's my boy there, current director of the club as well. So I, I just simply cannot go like my man Maldini right there. And, you know, you even talked about Clarence Sadorf. I think he's one of the more underrated players all time in terms of his overall balance as a midfielder, right? I think, you know, he's won, I think he's won four title Champions League trophies, two at Milan. He won one with Ajax and he won one with Real Madrid. Um, I think he's the only player to win it with three different teams. But if you look at his overall body of work um, and just how professional he is as an individual, I think he's one of my all-time favorite players. And I think my, one of my all-time underrated footballers in the sense that, again, I think you know, he doesn't get as much credit as I think he deserves um, for such a long, storied career that he's had. But I, I'm going to go with your And look, I, I, if you ask me again to come on, there's a good chance that I'll probably have some second thought and I maybe go somewhere else, depending on how I'm feeling with the defensive side or do I want a more midfield heavy team or maybe I want some more flair up front. But I think I'm going to go with the defensive side here. I think, you know, your defense, I think, can negate or combat a lot of these attacks that these guys are throwing at you. Well, Yoni wins, Yoni wins again. <laughs> again. He, he wins a lot. He wins a lot. Yeah, he, he is the third time. Oh, man. <laughs> so, so maybe maybe he was doing some sli- I don't know if he was maybe doing some slight pandering because he was like okay I'm gonna choose Maldini I'm gonna kind of you know fill this team <laughs> with some Milan like, guys. So. I put Thiago Silva in there. I was hoping that you'd uh, you'd show some love to to Thiago. Silva. Someone else had Nesta too though. Yeah, someone else had Nesta too. Oh yeah, Billy. So yeah. it's tough. I think the, the one of the guys who I, I saw the trend with him going with Inter guys Cordova. He went to Utah Nagatomo like and <laughs> like. He, he went for the 2010 trouble team, so I can respect that, but I, I got to dock him points for that, unfortunately. Fair enough. Yeah, we did kind of do John a little bit dirty there, although he was a good sport about it. <laughs> yeah, so. just in support of Matt and therefore myself also, I do arguably have the best goalkeeper and best defender of all time, and I'm not sure anyone sure. else can claim to have the best. Your Maybe whoever has Ronaldo up front. But... Yoni, is there a player in your team that you've never seen play though? Is that a little, uh, <laughs> that a little spoiler from our draft the other day? George Ware. <laughs> George Scandal. Ware. Scandal. I don't need to. I just need to watch James Richardson's Football Italia. A couple of episodes of that, and you're an expert in Serie A from the '90s. So, Ballon d'Or speaks for itself. <laughs> The end is near, to quote a famous Italian-American. Those were, of course, the words of the late 
Frank Sinatra. I want to say thank you to my co-host Joe, thank you to Yoni as well, and a special thank you to today's guest, Matt Santangelo. Matt, it's been really brilliant having you on the pod. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Do you have any projects that you're working on or looking forward to even? I just recently relaunched my Medium account. I'm doing some academy profiles on certain teams, Real Madrid. I just dropped today um, at the time of recording here, the Roma Juventus, I've done Barcelona. But my big passion project, of course, is the State of Play Pod. As I mentioned, cover top five leagues in Europe, plus Major League Soccer. So I think we kind of touch all our bases there. We're, we're not recently nominated for Football Content Awards, which is a great honor for us. I'm just linked up with uh, The Athletic, the, who are sponsoring our podcast and our YouTube channel. So make sure you guys go check us out there at State of Play Pod on all social. And uh, yeah, I just appreciate the support, guys. And I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been a blast. Yeah, no, it's been, like I said, amazing having you, Matt. And yeah, we're going to keep an eye out for the rest of your projects. And we'll be cheering on Milan as foreign fans for the rest of the season. Look out for Matt on Twitter. He's at Matt underscore Santana. Mm-hmm. On our last episode, we heard the stirring single In Flight by Mulholland. This time, playing us off, it's the turn of Chop with their new single, Top Gun. Prepare to get this one stuck in your heads, everyone. This is Chop, and you've been listening to The Blazers for Goalposts. This is our single, Top Gun. Enjoy.